How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening. We pray that you would help us to understand these things, that as we focus on the spiritual life of Noah, we pray that you would challenge us with the example that is set before us. Now, Father, we continue to pray for this congregation, this church, that you would guide and direct us, and that, that you would continue to provide for the uh, needs related to the building as well as other other things. Father, we also remember our missionaries. We pray for Jim Myers with the uh, his trips coming here and then to South America in the near future. We pray that you would uh, help him as he is preparing to study uh, right now to get ready for that trip and to leave and come back to the States next week. Father, we just pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 Verse 7. Hebrews 11.7 reads, By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world, and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Now, as we spent the last a couple of sessions in this study going through Genesis 6 and the description of God's uh, calling out Noah, giving him a specific task, giving him the task of building the ark, which we saw last time, the warning of universal judgment. I thought it would be good to pause and take a look at Hebrews 11.7 because this gives us a glimpse into Noah's Christian, or not his Christian life, but his his spiritual life, his spiritual walk. As we look at Hebrews 11, it gives us a clue as to what our focus should be on in the midst of uh, crisis, in the midst of calamity, in the midst of difficulty. Noah lived at a time that no other person has ever lived in. None of us have ever faced the kind of devastating trauma that Noah faces. We may face some sort of weather disaster and lose a home. Somebody may face a health disaster where they have to go through a number of crises, but nothing that we go through can compare to the kind of crisis in life that Noah went through. And we live in a world with the threat of terrorism, with the threat of, uh, of shall we say, uh, liberal political terrorism with the threat of, of, uh, 
the sodomite terrorists on the left and various other terrorists on the left, judicial terrorism in the courts. We, uh, we need to realize as believers that our focus is not on what's happening here in this world, especially this year in an election year with all the uncertainties that that brings with it. And people tend to get all wrapped up into, in the political season and the various political campaigns and different uh, individuals hoping that if their candidate wins that somehow there'll be stability or happiness or or something we need to realize that what drives us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ is something greater we have a we have a personal sense of an eternal destiny which becomes the motivation for our living the Christian life today as i was looking at this passage in hebrews 11:7 I, we're, we're, we'll key on when we get there is that Noah became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. And this word inheritance, which we've studied many times in the past, is only used with reference to Noah and Abraham in this particular passage. And in Hebrews 11.7, Noah is focused on his inheritance and then in Hebrews 11:8, we're told that Abraham obeyed uh, by faith. Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. So these men lived their life in terms of present time, in terms of certain crises that they faced in life. And of course, Abraham is being called by God to go somewhere. Uh, where he knew not, he was just following the Lord's guidance, and his focus was on what the Lord would provide. And this is emphasized with Abraham down in verse 13. They all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. In other words, they were living to their present life in terms of a future promise and a future hope that they did not see in their temporal life. So I wanted to take this time to focus on Noah and his spiritual life, because there's a lot for us to learn there in relation to our own spiritual life and living in the midst of times of crisis in history. So let's begin by just analyzing the verse itself. And the first thing we should note is the phrase, by faith. By faith, and this is the dative case of the noun pistos. This is the dative case of the noun pistos. Or pistis, excuse me, it's an I. P-I-S-T-I-S, which is the word for faith. Now, faith is the word for trust or reliance. As such, this is called a noun of action because you are doing something. You are believing, you're trusting, you're relying in something. And faith itself is non Meritorious. That means there's no merit in faith. Anybody can exercise faith. That is why the Lord's table eating 
the eating the bread, drinking the cup, is a perfect picture of faith and accepting or receiving Christ uh, for your Savior is because anybody can eat and anybody can drink. The merit is not in the eating or the drinking. The merit is in what you eat or what you drink. Uh, not that there's merit. Don't I'm not going there. I'm not saying there's merit in the Lord's table, but it is in what that symbolizes. And the same thing with faith. Faith is non-meritorious, and the merit is in what you believe, the object of faith. If someone is believing the wrong thing, then it has no salvific power at all. You can't get saved believing in Christ plus the sacraments. It's not going to work. You're not going to get saved believing that somehow being good enough is going to get you saved. You're believing the wrong thing. And when you believe in Christ alone, he is the object, and he is the perfect object, and he performs all the work for our salvation on the cross. So faith is used in two senses in the Scripture. It's used in the active sense of trust, and it's also used in the sense of the object of faith or what is believed. In other words, Bible doctrine. And we use it that way many times when we talk about certain people and we say, well, their their faith. You can talk about the Roman Catholic faith. You can talk about the uh, Episcopal faith, the Presbyterian faith. You can talk. You, we use faith in that sense all the time. And sometimes when you use the the, the this word faith or pistis in Scripture, it it ha, it really includes both aspects. It includes the act of trusting, but also the object of trusting, what you are trusting in. In other words, the doctrine that you're trusting. So when the writer of Hebrews here says, by faith, he's referring in context back to what he introduces in verse 1. Now, faith, that is, the faith, biblical faith that we have, that emphasizing content. But you can't just talk about content apart from the act of trusting in it. That you can't, even though we talk about these two senses, they're, it's like a, I might say it's like a seesaw. You have the act of trusting on one end. Let me draw it up here this way. Here's your, here's your fulcrum and here's your seesaw. Over here you might have the active sense, and uh, that's heavy in the word, and what you're believing, the object, you're light on it, so that's up high. Other times you're going to use the word, and the heavier emphasis is on the object, that is what you believe, and there's less emphasis on the act of trusting. But both are always present in the use of the word. It's not one to the exclusion of the other. And so the writer here is talking about the fact that each of these heroes, these faith heroes in in Hebrews 11, are trusting in something, but it's not faith in faith. It is faith in specific revelation from God to them related to specific tasks in their life. Now, the reason that that, that I, I, I emphasize that is because you get down to some folks that are what most of us would consider some, some, uh, well, let not just, we, we would say they're not really paragons of, 
spiritual living. When we get down to about verse 32, what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. Now, we studied Judges, and we saw that those guys were real losers about 90% of their spiritual life. But they came through at key points in relationship to specific revelation that God gave them, and that gives great hope and confidence to the rest of us because most of the time we, we have a tendency to uh, create icons out of these Old Testament heroes that they somehow had greater walks, uh, spiritual life walks than we do. And, of course, that's not true. Scripture says that, that John the Baptist was the greatest of the Old Testament saints and any church-age believer has a spiritual life that's far superior to John the Baptist. So our spiritual life is far superior to theirs. But the principle of the faith rest drill is still foundational to both their spiritual life as well as our spiritual life. So Hebrews 11, 5, uh, or 11 is really talking about how these individuals utilize the faith rest drill at key points at key times, at crisis points in their spiritual life and how that motivated them and strengthened them in the midst of that crisis. And so in Hebrews 11:7, we're told that it was by means of faith, that is the doctrine in his soul, trusting in that which God had revealed to him, Noah. So the means by that, that enabled him to live his spiritual life was belief in what God had revealed to him. By application, what God has revealed to each of us is the completed canon of Scripture. We have the 66 books of the Bible. We have the 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 books of the New Testament that have been given to us. And we have, uh, some have said, over 3,000 promises in the Scripture that we can claim. This is a foundation for our spiritual life, just as it was the foundation for the spiritual life of, of these men. Now we have something they didn't have, and that is the all of the ministries of God the Holy Spirit to the believer. We've been baptized by means of the Holy Spirit so that we're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We have the ongoing operation of the filling of the Holy Spirit in terms of our sanctification and spiritual growth, and we are sealed by the Spirit, as we'll see in our study this evening. By faith, Noah. And then the next phrase, which says being warned by God, is uh, actually the aorist passive participle of the Greek verb krematizo, C-H-R-E-M-A-T-I-Z-O. I've started getting email from people saying I need to spell out the Greek when I put it on the PowerPoint because when I write it on the overhead, I'll spell it out, but otherwise I don't, so they don't know how to spell it. So, krematizo, as the aorist passive participle, nominative masculine singular, and it's a narthrus. That means simply that it doesn't have a an article in the Greek. And if it has an article, it's adjectival. If it doesn't have an article, that means it is adverbial, which means you have to go find the main verb, because your participles will all... Uh, determine their action off the main verb, and the main verb is found down in uh, 
the next sentence where it says, in reverence, he built, literally he built or prepared an ark, and that's Kadeskuazo. We'll get there in a minute. But Kadeskuazo is an aorist active indicative, and an aorist participle, participles don't have time. They're times related to the main verb, so an aorist participle and an aorist main verb means that the time of the participle precedes the action of the main verb. So first God warns him, then he prepared an ark, which is what we've seen in our study in Genesis 6. So it should be translated by faith Noah, either after he was warned by God, because it's talking about him preparing the ark, when he was warned by God, or better, after he was warned by God about things not seen. And that it's the next phrase is uh, in reverence. Now, one other comment. After he was warned by God about things not seen. See, he had never before seen a flood. He had no idea what a flood was. He had no empirical data of what a flood was. He had no frame of reference for what rain was. It was a totally foreign concept to him. And yet he was to build this a huge boat. So he's warned about something that's not seen. And this takes us back to understanding the concept of faith. Too often in modern thought, we want to juxtapose faith with knowledge as if they are two different things. Yet in the Bible, faith is simply one way in which we know something to be true. In human viewpoint, we want to limit knowledge to rationalism or empiricism or the wackos on the New Age fringe want to get into mysticism because they think they can just generate truth out of their own inner being. We have faith versus versus knowledge, but really faith is one kind of knowledge based on revelation. That God has spoken, and we get our knowledge from God's information rather than rationalism, empiricism, or mysticism. So Noah has a superior knowledge. Right now, of course, is a bad time for me because I have to watch all these Idiotes, we learned that word in Greek the other morning, you know, unlearned men. Well, I'll just use the Greek term, all these idiotes on CBS, ABC, NBC, doing analysis of, of the passion of the Christ. Now, speaking of that movie, which of course, anybody here see it today? Okay, it's coming out soon. What I would challenge you to do before you go see it, Read through the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about five times before you go see it. Make it a test that you're going to read through the gospel accounts five or six times, and then when you go, keep your your your, your discernment screen up and watch every detail and try to pick out as many things as you can that are not found in the Scripture because there's going to be some things, you know, there may be some positive benefits of this movie. It may uh, help us and give us a totally new visual impact and understanding of the crucifixion. But Mel Gibson is not infallible or inerrant. 
and he's not an apostle, and this is not absolute truth. It is simply his impression. So there's going to be some things there that are not right, and there's a certain number of things I understand that are included that don't come out of the gospel. So you should always go to something like this with your discernment grid in place to screen out all of the human viewpoint or extra-biblical nonsense that slips in. So the best way to gird yourself for that is to, to read through those gospel accounts five or six times so that you've got that firmly in your mind. You're going to see stuff go, I didn't read that. Oh, that means it's not biblical. That's how you exercise uh, some discernment. So, but anyhow, the point I was making was all the idiotes are making comments about faith and the faithful, and it's just enough to make you bilious when you watch these reporters who don't know the first thing about Christianity, and they're trying to make comments and use religious verbiage, and they don't know anything about it, and it just reveals their absolute ignorance. So, we have to realize faith is not juxtaposed to knowledge. It is a knowledge that is based on authority. And in many ways, it's not any different from a lot of the knowledge that you and I accumulated when we were young. When somebody told us, we had a math teacher or an English teacher or a science teacher, and they told us, this is the way something is. And we believed it on the basis of the fact that they told us. And faith, we had expressed faith in those instructors, and that's not any different from the faith you express in the revelation of God. So Noah is expressing faith toward God and his revelation. God gave him specific propositional revelation with regard to judgment that would come 120 years uh, later. God would wait 120 years, and Noah had that time to preach the gospel and to build the ark. By faith, Noah after he was warned by God about things not yet seen. And then the next phrase, which is translated in reverence, which is a, to me, just a distorted or screwy kind of pious uh, word to use here. I don't know. The the main verb, kata skuadzo, which is a word to make ready or to build a structure, this is a construction trade term. And I don't know, do you, you guys in construction trades get out there and build in reverence? I mean, it just doesn't sound like the proper terminology to me. So that word actually is the Greek verb, eulabeomai, E-U-L-A-B-E-O-M-A-I, eulabeomai. It's the aorist passive participle. So here we have another participle modifying the modifying the main verb of how it was built. So before he built, he was warned by God, and then he builds in a certain manner. This is an adverbial participle of manner, and the verb itself means to show reverent regard for something or respect. And I like the word respect because it reminds me, it's not the same word, phobeomai, uh, which is the word translated fear in the New Testament. Fear in Greek is phobeomai, where we get our word for phobias. But this is a word that is a synonym 
of Phobetomai, and it reminds me of the principle in the Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In that sense, fear is respect. We have to realize that God is the ultimate authority in life. God is the ultimate authority in the universe, and so we have to put him first and his revelation first. So what we're told here is that this is the manner in which he built. He is building the ark out of respect for God's revelation. He is not treating God's word lightly, which is what so many Christians do. They just don't have time to make it to Bible class twice a week. They're too busy with other things, and they will never make it. They will never make it to spiritual maturity if you only take it in, take doctrine in once a week. The main verb here is kataskuazo, K-A-T-A-S-K-E-U-A-Z-O, kataskuazo. And it's the aorist active indicative of the verb, and the aorist tense is simply the past tense form of the verb. And here it is used in a consummative or culminative sense. And it summarizes the action as if it, in terms of its conclusion. And in reverence, he had prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. So, and the word kataskuazo doesn't mean simply to prepare, although that's part of the meaning. It has a better sense in the, in the idea of bringing a structure into being, building, constructing, erecting, or creating. So this should be translated by faith, by means of the doctrine, by means of the belief in God's revelation. Noah, after he was warned by God about things not yet seen, out of respect, he constructed an ark for the salvation of his Household. So this tells you his attitude, respect for the authority of God and the revelation of God. And it caused him to do something. See, faith has two elements. We want, so often in human viewpoint, people think of faith as some sort of passive mystical thing. But faith has two elements. We talk about the faith rest drill, and that usually in and of itself emphasizes the passive idea that we're trusting in something but there is an active sense see we're trusting in a specific propositional revelation from God and in the midst of that revelation he may also be telling us to do certain things he may be telling us to relax be anxious for nothing so what we're supposed to do, we, we're, we're passive in the sense of trust, but we're active in the sense that, okay, I'm not going to worry. That would be an, on, an, on the negative side. On the other hand, we have, we have uh, two examples here that I've mentioned already, Noah and Abraham, where they were to positively do something. Noah was to build an ark. Abraham was to take a trip. In other words, trusting God wasn't just sitting with their hands folded saying, I'm going to trust God. It was actively engaging in the course of action God said to do, despite the fact that their reason, their background, their empirical knowledge may indicate that, that there was something uh, better, something more comfortable, something easier for them to do. So in respect for the authority of God, 
Noah constructed an ark for the salvation of his household. Now, the word translated ark is a Greek word, kibotos, K-I-B-O-T-O-S, kibotos. And this refers to either a seafaring vessel uh, or a box like a chest. In the first meaning, it refers to the ark, uh, Noah's ark, which is actually two different words are used in the Hebrew for for uh, the ark that of Noah, the uh, basket and the bulrushes that Moses was placed in, and the ark of the covenant. But in the Greek, as in English, we utilize the same word. So it has the first meaning here that this was a boat. He constructed a boat. He got involved in a shipbuilding operation, and he is building a a seafaring vessel under the guidance of the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave him the blueprint for the for the ark. And then we're told that this was for the purpose of the salvation of his household. Uh, prep, Greek preposition ace plus the accusative of of soteria, which means to the deliverance here. It's not salvation in terms of of uh, soul salvation or eternal salvation, but deliverance from this particular cataclysm. So out of respect for God, Noah constructed a seafaring vessel for the purpose of delivering his household, that is his his immediate family, his wife, his three sons, and their three wives. Now then, in the next phrase, we're told something different. We're told in the New American Standard, I think it translates it, by which he condemned the world. The Greek translation should be through which he condemned the world. It is the Greek preposition dia plus the genitive dia, D-I-A, plus the genitive of the uh, relative pronoun. It is dia plus the genitive of the relative uh, pronoun has. And the relative pronoun refers back to the ark. By which, that is the, uh, excuse me, lead back to his faith. Faith, pistis, is a feminine noun. And ark is a, excuse me, I'm reading my notes wrong. Ark, kibotas, that Omicron Sigma ending threw me there for a minute because that's normally a mass, uh, that is normally a masculine ending, but here we have an irregular Form and so archibotas is a feminine ending, as is faith. But it's, the near reference is kabotas, so that means that it is by which that is the construction of the ark. The ark itself condemned the world, and the Greek verb here for condemnation is the verb kata. Krino, K-A-T-A-K-R-I-N-O. It's an intensified form of the verb krino, which means to judge or condemn. And katakrino means to pronounce a sentence 
after determination of guilt. To pronounce a sentence after determination of guilt. This is what happens in the courtroom after the jury comes back with a guilty verdict. Then the judge pronounces the sentence. So the ark itself pronounced the sentence. It was a visual uh, sentence on the on the people of the antediluvian period that they would drown in the flood. By which, that is the construction of the ark, he executed or announced the sentence on the world. That is the cosmic system of the antediluvian age. And then our final statement, and he became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Now this is the important thing to understand in where this verse is going. He became, and it's the aorist middle indicative of genomai, meaning that you, he became something that he was not before. Something he was not before. Previously, he was not an heir in this sense, but he became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. And as I look at this, syntactically, gone back and revised some things I thought about this verse, as you look at it syntactically, you have the phrase, the first verb, he prepared an ark and became an heir. Those are viewed as happening simultaneously. So the heir of the righteousness which is according to faith, heirship, is subsequent to the righteousness which is according to faith. So let's see if I can chart this out for a minute. At salvation, Noah becomes righteous. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago, just as in Genesis 15:7 we have the statement that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's the imputation of faith at salvation, or the imputation of righteousness at salvation, because based on faith, through faith. Afterward, there was blessing. You see the same parallel here, that there's the imputation of righteousness in Noah. He was seen by God to be the only one righteous in his generation. And as a result of that, there is subsequent blessing which is categorized here as his inheritance. See, in life we have two categories of inheritance. I've talked about these before, what I call contingency blessings in time and contingency blessings for eternity. Contingency blessings are times of the various blessings that God has for us between the time of our salvation and the time we're absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. Contingency blessings in eternity have to do with our rewards and long-term inheritance. Now, what the way we should understand Hebrews 11:7 is that Abraham, I mean, excuse me, Noah, has the righteousness which is according to faith. And that is always going to give every believer a certain inheritance. But there is an additional inheritance. Those contingency blessings, either in time or eternity, 
that only become ours when we trust God and apply his revelation to our lives and grow to spiritual maturity. So Noah becomes an heir of the righteousness he already had according to faith but because he trusts God and acts on God's promise. So that brings us to a doctrine we haven't studied in a while, the doctrine of inheritance. The doctrine of inheritance. And I was working diligently on this today, and and I came up with 21 points. We won't get through it tonight. But this is so crucial to understand. This is what drives Abraham drives Noah is their vision. And by vision, I don't mean a mystical vision, but their clear focus on what God is doing in their life, where God is taking them in their life, the clear focus of their inheritance, and it is that that uh, uh, sense of destiny, their eternal destiny, that drives their daily decisions in time, and that is the same thing that should be driving us, is we need to understand we have an inheritance that is contingent upon the decisions we make in time, and that is related to our own spiritual growth. So let's start by an understanding of the basic concept of inheritance. The word is, first word is the noun, that is kleronomos, kleronomos which means an inheritance, a possession, or a property. And I think that in many cases, the best thing to under, best way to understand this is a possession, something that we have. An inheritance is related to, in, to a reward, a reward. Uh, salvation is a gift. It's not a reward. Inheritance in many cases is, is related to a reward. There's an inheritance means a possession or a property. The, the verb is kleronomeo, K-L-E-R-O-N-O-M-E-O. There I transliterated the kleronomos on this slide. K-L-E-R-O-N-O-M-O-S. And it's, uh, the ending is E-O if it's the verb. There are four senses in which this is true. First of all, we have a possession, an inheritance, which is a birthright. This is something that one gains by virtue of their sonship, Galatians 4.30 and Hebrews 1.4. There is a birthright in relationship to one's sonship. Second aspect of an inheritance is its property received as a, as a gift in contrast to reward, Hebrews 1.14, Hebrews 6.12. Property received is a gift in contrast to a reward. That's one kind of inheritance. The third is a different kind of inheritance. This is property received on condition of obedience to certain conditions. 1 Peter 3.9. This is conditional. The first two categories were unconditional, a birthright that everyone would receive by virtue of sonship, Second, property received is a gift in contrast to reward. Third, property received on condition of obedience to certain conditions. Fourth, 
a reward based on meeting certain conditions and following certain activities. So you have, it's apparent from the, the usage that there are two categories of inheritance. One will be common to every believer, and the second will be that which is distinct based on fulfilling the conditions of spiritual growth. Now, that's not a works righteousness. It's not a works blessing, as I've explained many times in the past. It's all based on possession of plus R, but certain certain blessings are not distributed because we don't have the capacity to handle them, and these are those contingent blessings. Now, point number one is the simple definition, recognition of the Greek terms. Point number two through seven relates to understanding Christ's inheritance. That's really the backdrop for understanding the believer's inheritance, understanding Christ's inheritance. So point number two, we have a clear statement in Scripture that Christ is the heir of all things. Christ is the heir of all things. Hebrews 1, 2. In these last days... God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Now, he made the world. Jesus Christ made the world. Uh, God the Father used Jesus Christ in him, by him, through him, the whole world. Everything that was in the world was made. Everything that we see came from the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the active agent in creation. So that would relate, the last phrase, of course, relates to the deity of Christ. But I want to focus on that middle clause, whom he appointed heir of all things. Is that in relationship to his humanity or his deity? That is in relationship to his humanity in hypostatic union. This is, I'll make this clear in the next couple of points. But this is where, I want you to understand this is where we're going. His airship here is related to what he accomplished in the strategic victory on the cross, ending with his ascension into heaven. So that has to be related not to his deity because he was always God. He was always undiminished deity. He was always, just like we studied in the ascension, he was always in authority over all the creatures in his deity. But in his humanity, he is elevated over the angels by virtue of his strategic victory on the cross and God's acceptance of that, and he is elevated to the right hand of God the Father, and he is placed in authority over all the angels, principalities, and powers in the universe. And that relates to his humanity. As a man, he is elevated to that position. So this airship relates to his humanity and hypostatic union with his deity. Let's expand on that with the third point. Christ's inheritance is based on his successful completion of his strategic victory on the cross. His inheritance is based on his successful completion of his strategic victory on the cross. It is only after that that he is elevated in authority over the angels, and it is only after that that he is uh, seated at the right hand of God the Father. Hebrews 1.4 is our passage. Having become as much better than the angels. And this is the aorist middle participle of genomai. And that is important to understand. Genomai means to become something that you weren't before. It is an anarthrous participle, which means it has a 
is adverbial and has a causal sense here. Because he became better than the angels. And if we look at the context of Hebrews 1.3, we read, Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What is in view in that sentence, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high? That's his humanity. Deity doesn't sit. Deity is omnipresent. His humanity sits at the right hand because he had become so much better than the angels. Well, he was already better than the angels in his deity, so this has to be focusing on what he qualified for and the inheritance he qualified for in his humanity, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. This is a post-resurrection inheritance. So Christ's inheritance, then, is based on his successful completion of his strategic victory on the cross, and that's based on both the verb and the causal sense of the participle in Hebrews 1.4. Point number four, how did he qualify for this inheritance? That's what point four seeks to answer. Christ's character in his humanity was developed through learning obedience through the things he suffered. Learning obedience through the things he suffered. This is Hebrews 2.10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. The, the him here is God the Father, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. And there we have the verb translated to perfect, Teleao, which means to bring to completion or to bring to maturity the author of their salvation through sufferings. So the Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity, in hypostatic union, is matured. He goes through the same process of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity that you and I go through, and he goes through it through suffering. This is key to understand his advance. This is also stated in Hebrews 5.8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Now, both of these passages emphasize the dimension of suffering in the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not talking about the suffering on the cross. This is talking about living in a fallen world, living with, with fallen creatures from the moment he was born up to the point of the cross, he learned obedience. He didn't. The, the suffering here wasn't disciplinary suffering as it is with us. He didn't learn dis, learn obedience because he was disobedient. He learned obedience uh, and was obedient. You don't have to be disobedient to learn obedience. You don't have to learn it's wrong to commit murder. I think that if I took a poll, everybody in this room would understand that it is wrong to commit murder. And I don't think I have any murderers in the congregation today. Now, there's a few times when you you might wonder, but but today we don't have any murderers in the congregation. Now, you learned that without committing murder. You didn't have to commit murder to learn that it was wrong to commit murder. And there are many other sins that you haven't committed, I'm sure, not because you haven't had opportunity, but because that's just not the trend of your sin nature. 
and you didn't have to commit them to learn that they were wrong. And that just got instilled in you as a young child. Somebody taught you values and you didn't, you never committed those acts. I don't think we have any necrophiliacs or anybody into bestiality and who knows what kind of perverse things I could come up with. But you didn't have to learn those things were wrong in order to not do them. And the point is that Jesus Christ didn't have to commit sin in order to learn obedience. He learned obedience, nevertheless, from the things which he suffered. Now, this is crucial to remember when we come back to our understanding of Romans 8.17. Point number four. So Jesus advanced spiritually through learning doctrine, living under the filling of the Holy Spirit, and producing capacity righteousness. This is experiential righteousness, which becomes the strength of character in any individual. He goes through that same process. He learns doctrine. He has to handle the situations in life, and he grows and matures. He was tested in all points as we are yet without sin, uh, Hebrews also says. So point number four, he advanced spiritually through learning doctrine, living under the filling of the Holy Spirit, producing capacity righteousness. The same thing that we do. Point number five, Christ's character is defined in terms of the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5:22 to 23, and Ephesians 5, 9. If you're using a New American Standard or one of the uh, <clears throat> modern translations based on the Westcott Hort, uh, text, then it won't have fruit of the Spirit. It will have fruit of the light, but uh, the better reading is fruit of the Spirit in Ephesians 5.9. That defines Christ's character. It's the result of the walk in the light and walk by the Spirit. So that, point number six, his impeccability, he never sinned. He was tested in all points as we are, yet without sin, so that his impeccability qualified him to go to the cross as our Redeemer. Because he was qualified, because he had no sin, he is qualified to go to the cross and there to pay the penalty for the sins of mankind. But beyond that, point number seven, his spiritual growth and maturity qualifies him for his inheritance. It qualifies him for his inheritance, because he has grown and advanced in spiritual maturity, he is qualified for his uh, inheritance. Psalm 2.8 says, Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. That comes as after the uh, period of the session which is where we are right now in terms of Christ's present ministry. So he will be given an inheritance in the future. His spiritual growth qualified him for that. Hebrews 1-2 states it as well. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. This came, as I pointed out earlier, Hebrews 1-2 and 4 emphasize this is a post-resurrection inheritance based upon the qualification of obedience at the cross. Now, all of that is simply to establish the basic principle. Jesus Christ grew up spiritually the same way we do, by meeting tests, handling them by means of doctrine under the filling of the Holy Spirit, so that by means of that suffering, he advances and qualifies for his inheritance. Now, 
is qualified in one sense because of his sonship, on another sense because of his spiritual growth. Now the next points, 8 through 17, are going to tie this into our inheritance. Point number 8, our inheritance is based on adoption and sonship. This is the first category of inheritance. It is a positional truth inheritance, Galatians 3.29 and Galatians 4.1. Another passage that's key is Romans 8.16 through 17. If you are your father's son, uh, well, the argument here is if you're your father's son, then you're the father's heir. Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That has to do with our adoption. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may be, may also be glorified with him. Now we've studied this in the past and pointed out that this has to be repunctuated. You look at the commas. You have a comma after also and a comma after Christ. What that does is it lumps heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ together as if they are equated. Now let me give you a little extra added attraction here, a little bonus point. It looks like you're talking about two airships. You have an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. Now, if you're grocery listing something in, this, in, in Greek and you're saying we have this and this, then the conjunction that you use is the Greek conjunction chi. You don't have a chi here at all. What you have is following the phrase soon kleronomos, which is the plural noun for joint heirs, you have the post-positive, that means it always comes after the first word in the clause, Greek preposition da, which in a lot of contexts can be parallel with chi. But you don't use da when you're linking two, thing, two equal things. You, you use chi to link two equal things like apples and oranges, or I'm going to go to the store and then I'm going to go to the bank. You're linking two, two common things together with that uh, conjunction chi. But when you have de, you're indicating that you are joining clauses. Now that means that you have one clause and then you have another clause. And clauses represent different thoughts. So what we have here is two different thoughts. And we've gone through this before in the past with our little saying, a woman without her man is nothing. Now, there's probably somebody here who doesn't remember that. How do you punctuate that? See, most of you women are thinking, well, that's a woman. Without her, man is nothing. The main clause is man is nothing. And most of you guys are punctuating that. A woman without her man, comma, is nothing. In other words, the phrase for the for when you offset without her man with commas the the main noun is a woman so it becomes a woman is nothing so depending on where you insert the commas it depends on the meaning of the sentence either a woman without her man is nothing or a woman without her man is nothing 
So there were no commas in the original Greek text. So the insertion of the comma, commas in Romans 8.17 is based on theological presuppositions. And so they link these together, and I've already given you an argument why grammar should separate them. And there should be a comma after heirs of God. So it should read, if children, heirs also, comma, heirs of God, comma, and fellow heirs with Christ, no comma, if indeed we suffer with him. So that the, the condition, if we suffer with him, is connected to being a fellow heir with Christ. That emphasizes two distinct heirships. One is an, a, being a, an heir of God, which is common to every believer. The second is being a joint heir with Christ, which is predicated upon suffering with him. Now, how did Jesus Christ grow to spiritual maturity? We just looked at that in our previous passages in Hebrews. Let me go back to them. Hebrews 2.10 and 5.8. He was matured. He, God matured the author of their salvation through sufferings. Hebrews 5.8. He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. So it's not talking about being a martyr. It's not talking about some special category of suffering. If we suffer with him, in other words, if we follow him, in the same pattern of suffering, that is, we handle the difficulties in our life through the filling of the Spirit and application of doctrine, then we will qualify for an inheritance just as he qualified for an inheritance, and that inheritance has to do with his future reign in the millennial kingdom. And our qualification for inheritance has to do with the same thing, to be qualified to rule and reign with him in the millennial kingdom. So that takes us to point nine. There are two classifications of inheritance, being an heir of God and a joint heir of Christ. Two classifications, heir of God and joint heir of Christ. The first on point number ten, the condition for being a joint heir of Christ is suffering with him. Not some, as I said, not some special category of suffering, but Simply the normal process of living in a fallen world with fallen people, uh, living in a world where there is temptation and testing, where we uh, take the path of application of doctrine under the filling of the Holy Spirit. Well, we'll stop there. That's the first ten points. We'll come back and review that a little bit. This is such a crucial, crucial doctrine to understand because it ties into our personal sense of our eternal destiny in the same way that Noah's faith tied in with his personal sense of his destiny. He understood that the decisions he was making in relationship to the ark affected his destiny. Same thing for us. The decisions you make today determine what will happen in the millennial kingdom and beyond. You are becoming today what you will be in eternity, and we can't lose sight of that with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged with our future destiny and inheritance, that we might make decisions today to qualify us for an inheritance to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.